Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to Black History Unveiled, from the continent to the diaspora, a new podcast spotlighting pivotal moments, influential figures, and groundbreaking movements from black history, stories often overlooked or underplayed in conventional textbooks. My name is Amat Levine. I'm a Swedish Gambian journalist and author, and I spend a lot of my time highlighting the history of black people worldwide. Why? It's actually pretty simple. The main reason is that the history of black people, at least here in the West, has traditionally been marginalized or treated as unimportant. That's something I want to help change. Some people question why history is important. They might feel like history, especially black or African, has nothing to do with them. But how we write and interpret historical events directly influences how we understand ourselves and our present time. Understanding history makes it easier to understand our world today. If you're curious about the inspiration behind this podcast or want to know more about who I am, check out the first episode in the feed. In it, I delve deeper into my aspirations, thoughts, and hopes for this podcast. Oh, and as some of you have probably already picked up on, English is not my first language. I try to be as correct as possible, but I'll likely make grammatical errors or mess up some pronunciations. And for that, I apologize. This premiere episode of Black History Unveiled is about a country where corruption was rampant, where a small elite lived well at the expense of the majority, and where international aid was essential for survival. It is also a story about a person who wanted to change all that, and who genuinely seemed to want the population's best. The methods have been questioned, but the result spoke for itself. This is the story of Tuma Sankara and his struggle to make Burkina Faso stand on its own two feet. A fight that cost him his life. They sit around the table as they've done countless times. On the agenda is a discussion of a new revolutionary code of conduct 
to facilitate the work against corruption. The cabinet members engage in their usual banter before one of them declares the meeting officially open. But then suddenly, The screeching sound of tires catches their attention. From the outside, frantic voices. And then, machine gun fire. Panic engulfs the room, chaos ensues, and instinctively, the men dive for cover. But then, one of them stands up. Tumas Sankara, the mastermind behind the revolution. He had fundamentally changed Burkina Faso in just four short years. He stands up slowly and meets the eyes of the others, one by one. Stay here, he says. It's me they want. Then he carefully inches towards the door and opens it. He raises his arms above his head and walks out, ready to confront his fate. Moments later, another round of machine gun fire rings through the building. As Tumasankara lies motionless on the floor, his body pierced by bullets, he's only 37 years old. Under his leadership, Burkina Faso saw tremendous development, making rapid strides toward freeing itself from the shackles of corruption. But his radical and swift changes were not appreciated by everyone. Enemies lurked within his borders and among the powerful forces of the Western world. Now, one main question remained. Who killed him and why? Long before Tumasankara, the Mossi kingdoms ruled the region that makes up today's Burkina Faso. It was a collection of loosely composed states that held sway over the region ever since the 1200s. According to oral tradition, the kingdoms trace back to Yenenga, a princess born in the 12th century in a small domain nestled in the northern reaches of what we now call Ghana. Yenenga, a spirited teenager, excelled in the arts of war and was a skilled horsewoman who mastered both bow and spear. She even led battalions during several of her father's battles. The legend goes that Yeninga's military prowess was so remarkable that her father refused to arrange a marriage for her. But she supposedly longed for children. One night, she disguised herself as a male soldier and escaped, riding north on her trusted stallion. She is said to have met a lone elephant hunter in the southern forests of what is now Burkina Faso. The legend describes that Yenenga and the hunter fell in love and had a son, Odrago, which roughly means stallion or male horse. And as Odrago matured, he was the one who went on to establish the Mossi kingdoms. Today, the Mossi make up about half of Burkina Faso's roughly 20 million inhabitants, and Yenenga is still called the mother of the Mossi. However, the centuries-old reign of the Mossi kingdoms shattered in 1896. Formidable French forces descended upon the land, signaling the beginning of a tumultuous struggle. The clash between invaders and resilient locals continued for years. But in 1919, the final blow fell, and France transformed the land into a colony known as French Upper Volta. The name alluded to the upper reaches of the Volta River, which flows through the country. It's a beautiful region, with majestic baobab trees and vast plains of the distinct red earth, but it is simultaneously a crucible of inhospitable elements, where searing heat, recurring droughts, and scarce water supplies conspire to make life hard for many. The country's northern parts lie in the Sahel zone, where the mighty Sahara Desert transitions to sweeping savanna and grass plains. During the most challenging periods, the margins for survival are thin. 
The colony was of low priority to the French, who primarily used it as a source for limited cotton production and a steady supply of cheap labor. Forced labor, high taxes, and the use of violence by colonial masters were commonplace. Poor farmers had their grain requisitioned by the state, and the French recruited scores of young men to build infrastructure in what they deemed more important colonies, such as Ivory Coast. But increased demands for self-government followed in the aftermath of World War II. And in the 1950s, France, compelled by the shifting tides of time, took decisions that step-by-step made it possible. In 1960, the country became independent. Maurice Yomego, who had a lengthy background in the colonial administration and had long belonged to an elite class of sort of Europeanized Africans, was named the nation's first president. But his political maneuvers in the run-up to independence effectively turned him into an autocrat. Upper Volta, as the country was now called, thus began its independence as a de facto dictatorship. Immediately, corruption began to slither into the very fabric of society, with Yamego leading the charge. Despite the country's highly strained economy, he embezzled large sums of money. He spent millions on expensive cars and luxury homes. Nepotism became the norm as coveted positions were gifted to family members, all while he jailed his critics. In 1965, fresh from his so-called re-election, with a staggering 99.97% of the vote, he married the 22-year-old Miss Ivory Coast contest winner. The opulent ceremony, a monument to excess, soured the people's hearts. The president, still wedded to his first wife, became a symbol of unbridled power and unapologetic hubris. Raised taxes, suspended benefits, reduced wages for government employees, and reduced veteran pensions, all while Yamego spent money on the new presidential palace, helped spark a general strike in early 1966. Unions, students, city dwellers, and the religious elite rose against Yamego. Caught off guard, he responded with a heavy hand. He declared a state of emergency and threatened the strikers with military force. But instead, the very soldiers tasked with enforcing his rule turned against him. Yamego suddenly found himself compelled to step down, his reign crumbling beneath him. In retrospect, we know that Africa has suffered from the many armies that took political power around the continent. But this was a more innocent time. Here, people still believed that the military, with its discipline and structure, was precisely what was needed to overcome the politicians wallowing in excesses and corruption. As a result, the population widely supported the military's takeover, and many assumed that after a transitional period, the army would return power to the people. For the inhabitants of Upper Volta, however, it soon became apparent that this was only the beginning of a series of revolts that would succeed each other in the coming decades. First, Lieutenant Colonel Sangule Lamizana installed himself as president. He served until 1980 when Colonel Sey Serbo overthrew him in another military coup. Serbo only managed to rule for barely two years before he too was deposed, this time by Major Jean-Baptiste Eudrago. The next coup took place in 1983, but this one was different from the others. For now, a man with grandiose visions for Upper Volta came to power. Puma Sankara was born in 1949 in the small town of Yako in the northern parts of French Upper Volta. He spent his childhood in Gawa, 
near the border with Ghana and Ivory Coast, where his father was part of the gendarmerie, a militarily organized police force. As the colonial power employed his father, the family had a relatively privileged position. They lived in a brick house up on a hill above the city, together with the other families of the gendarmerie. The family also stood out by being Catholic in a country where most were Muslim. School became an eye-opener where social boundaries blurred and Sankara mingled with peers from diverse backgrounds. He saw how impoverished some of the students from the lower social classes were and noted how favorably the children of French officials were treated. As the eldest son of what eventually became eleven children, Sankara's position within the family hierarchy granted him a mantle of responsibility. His parents gave him more space to express his opinions. They asked him to take on a leadership position. They gave him the responsibility of raising and educating his younger siblings, who in turn began to see him almost as an extra parent. Sankara was a good student, especially in French and mathematics. At 17, he entered the newly established military college in Burkina Faso's capital, Ouagadougou. There, his horizon expanded. In addition to military training, he received education in several academic subjects. He got to know young minds destined for leadership. But perhaps the most important person was history and geography teacher Adama Touré, who introduced him to concepts such as neocolonialism, imperialism, communism and socialism. Sankara's eyes widened. In 1969, Sankara became among the few students selected to continue his education at the military college in Ansirabe, Madagascar. There, he supplemented his studies with agricultural knowledge, read Karl Marx for the first time, and witnessed the protests against the pro-French regime that shook the country in 1972. The following year, Sankara's return to his homeland was marked by fire and fury. An armed border conflict erupted between Upper Volta and Mali in December 1974, and he found himself immersed in the chaos. Commanding a squad, he successfully participated in one of the few battles in the otherwise uneventful war. The press hailed him as a war hero, but Sankara shunned such titles. Instead, he was struck by the senselessness of the conflict, how it affected ordinary civilians, people who had most things in common but had ended up on opposite sides of a colonial land border and now had their lives torn asunder as a result. In the meantime, however, he became close friends with another distinguished soldier, Blaise Compaure, and gained a reputation as an officer of great promise. President Sangolé Lamizana, the same who had seized power in a coup d'etat in 1966, recognized Sankara's immense potential and entrusted him with a crucial task. In 1976, he appointed Sankara to lead a new military camp in the town of Po. There, elite troops would be honed and shaped, ready to confront the challenges ahead. Within the camp's confines, Sankara transformed into a beloved figurehead. He ignited a passion for knowledge among his soldiers, urging them to read more books. He mobilized them to help local villagers with various construction projects. He also played guitar in a jazz band with his trusted companion, Compaure. Sankara's influence extended further as he took the stage to deliver impassioned lectures on social issues. He even orchestrated outdoor film screenings, set up accounts for the soldiers at a local bank, and taught them how to manage their money. Usually, military leaders ate separately, 
but Sankara ate together with his soldiers, who slowly but surely began to adore him. But simultaneously, Sankara became increasingly concerned about the country's many challenges. The population was poor, literacy was low, and corruption was high. Food prices soared while those who had the means embezzled everything they could. Some would even pillage aid shipments meant to combat famine, lining their pockets at the expense of the desperate. So when Colonel Sey Serbo seized the reins of power in a military coup in 1980, Sankara greeted the new regime with cautious optimism, hopeful that the promises of progress would materialize. However, a nagging doubt lingered in his mind, a flickering suspicion that the leadership lacked the audacious vision required to usher in a true transformation in the country. Sankara's ascent continued unabated. First propelled to the rank of captain, he then found himself catapulted into the realm of even greater influence as he assumed the role of information minister in September 1981. Reluctantly accepting the position, he was conflicted about aligning himself with the regime. But really, he had no choice. To be Minister of Information was not so much a job offer as a military order, and as a soldier, he had to follow it. But Sankara did set his conditions. The tenure would only be temporary, and in the meantime, the command of the military camp would pass on to his dear friend, Compaure. In the corridors of power, Sankara stood out. On his bicycle, he pedaled to work through the bustling streets, leaving his government car behind. He often ate at one of the cheap lunch counters lining the streets. He even urged the press not to idealize the government in their reports. But despite the government's promises to the contrary, corruption and repression continued to be a part of the new regime. The right to strike was outlawed, student activists were imprisoned, and unions faced opposition. Disgusted by these abuses of power, Sankara made a bold move. In April 1982, after a mere six months in office, he abruptly resigned. He announced his decision in a live radio appearance, accusing the government of silencing the people. The regime swiftly retaliated stripping him of his captain's rank and exiling him to a secluded military camp in the remote western reaches of the nation. For six agonizing months, he languished as a captive of the very system he had dared to challenge. Yet destiny had its own plans. The days of Sey Serbo's regime were numbered. In November 1982, the army seized the capital paving the way for a new military junta, led by the new president, Jean-Baptiste Odrago. Sankara's unwavering popularity had caught the collective eye, and in January 1983, Odrago offered him the prestigious post of prime minister. However, their visions clashed, and the relationship quickly strained due to Sankara's demands for a more progressive policy. Armed with fiery speeches that drew fervent young crowds, Sankara unleashed scathing criticism upon the bureaucracy, middle-class entrepreneurs, and the political elite. Within the junta, a clear divide emerged between the older guard, nurtured under French tutelage, who clung to remnants of the colonial era, and the younger, more radical generation who saw imperialism and neocolonialism as the root cause of their nation's woes. The Non-Aligned Movement was an organization for states in the so-called Third World. It sought to guard the interests of member states during the Cold War battle between East and West. In March 1983, the organization held a conference in New Delhi, India and Sankara was one of the speakers. This was his grand debut on the international stage, and he seized the opportunity. 
He came out as an opponent of Israel's invasion of Lebanon, criticized U.S. imperialism in South America, and voiced his unwavering support for the oppressed people of apartheid-stricken South Africa. During the pivotal conference, he had a long conversation with Cuban leader Fidel Castro. Before the conference, Sankara had visited Libya, and after it, he quickly visited North Korea. These encounters fueled the concerns of the Western powers, who fretted that this charismatic young leader could steer Upper Volta towards the path of socialism, or perhaps even veer into the realm of unbashed communism. At home, however, Sankara's conviction and magnetism continued to captivate the hearts of his people, yet his revolutionary ideals stoked fear in the hearts of President Eudrago, who viewed him as a potent threat to the status quo. Unbest known to the president, Sankara invited the infamous Libyan dictator al-Qaddafi to visit Upper Volta, even though both the United States and France viewed Gaddafi as a villain. This bold move proved to be the tipping point. A little over two weeks later, Sankara was arrested and placed under house arrest. Some historians have argued that this was due to pressure from France. The regime believed capturing Sankara would restore political stability and quell the country's revolutionary elements. But they gravely underestimated the impact of their actions. The decision unleashed a furious storm of anger amongst the people and the country's young officers, igniting wild protests. On August 4th, Captain Blaise Compaure, Sankara's loyal friend, led troops toward Ouagadougou. They captured the capital with minimal resistance. As the evening approached, people stopped in their tracks as they heard Sankara's voice on the radio. He announced the removal of the military junta, and the creation of the National Revolutionary Council, the country's new ruling party. Sankara, only 33 years old, assumed the presidency himself. The next day, jubilant crowds flooded the streets. August 5th, Upper Volta's Independence Day, was now forever intertwined with the birth of the revolution. It was a deliberate move. Sankara rode through the town, his presence a beacon of hope, periodically stopping to engage with residents whose faces radiated eager anticipation. As the dust settled and the cheers subsided, Upper Volta stood on the precipice of colossal change. You are listening to Black History Unveiled with me, Amat Levine. The episode will continue after this break. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The previous coup d'etats had merely shuffled the deck of power, 
But Thomas Sankara's revolution had real ambitions to create a new order in the country. High on the agenda was dismantling the entrenched corruption ensnaring Upper Volta, where a privileged few reveled in opulence, while the majority languished in the grip of abject poverty. In the book Thomas Sankara, an African revolutionary, American journalist Ernst Harsh quotes a speech Sankara gave two months after the takeover. In it, he describes Upper Volta's 23 years of independence as a, quote, Paradise for the wealthy minority. For the majority, the people, it is barely a tolerable hell. End quote. Sankara's promises were many and grand, but the challenges were extreme. The World Bank ranked Upper Volta as one of the world's poorest countries, and foreign investment trickled in at a feeble pace. To compound the struggle, the ever-resilient population relied almost exclusively on agriculture, their livelihoods teetering on the precipice of frequent droughts, severe floods, and voracious locust swarms. True to his nature, Sankara's informal leadership style broke the prevailing trend among many contemporary African leaders. He did not allow pictures of himself in public buildings or places. He continued to live in the same simple house as before, his two children went to a government school, and he avoided giving relatives favorable treatment. His wife, Mariam, continued to work at a shipping company, while his mother worked in the market. On the anniversary of the coup, Sankara changed the country's name from the colonial Upper Volta to Burkina Faso, which in local languages roughly translates to Land of the Honorable. As somewhat of a guitar player, he wrote the new national anthem himself. Sankara then launched several ambitious projects. He had the government's collection of expensive Mercedes cars sold and bought much cheaper Renault 5 models instead. The money left over from the sale he instead spent on schools and health clinics. He gave government employees, including himself, modest salaries and banned them from traveling in first class. He had several special bonuses that once adorned the politicians' and government employees' pockets relinquished. In Thomas Ankara, a revolutionary in Cold War Africa, historian Brian J. Peterson writes, quote, In contrast with many governments that resorted to austerity measures at this time, usually by cutting health care, education, and other social programs while preserving the privileges of elites, Sankara did quite the opposite, forcing elites to make sacrifices and ensuring that austerity helped the rural poor. End quote. In the wake of the transformative coup that thrust him into power, Sankara ignited a call to action, urging the people to forge so called committees for the defense of the revolution. These collectives, CDRs, drew inspiration from the Cuban model initially serving as defenders of the new order. Armed with simple tools and basic training, the new government tasked ordinary citizens with watching for potential counter-revolutionaries. But soon, the CDRs evolved into vehicles of mobilization, a way to implement the government's directives. Their ranks consisted of individuals from all walks of life, from the well-educated to the illiterate, and they arrived at their decisions by vote. The sweeping responsibilities bestowed upon the CDRs knew no bounds, from building and repairing roads to distributing food to those in need. Everywhere, communities banded together, harnessing the strength of their shared purpose, and took charge of developing the nation. They constructed schools, built housing, and dug new irrigation systems. Among the rural population, the authority had traditionally rested in the hands of elder male village chiefs, sometimes a person, sometimes a council. These leaders were accustomed to holding much power and had considerable self-determination. But the winds of change swept through all corners of the nation, and the CDRs gradually usurped their roles. The CDRs became the tangible embodiment of the government at the grassroots level both in urban areas and the farthest reaches of the countryside. Sankara's vision extended beyond the realms of infrastructure. 
he sought to redefine Burkina Faso's society, breaking the shackles of traditional gender roles that had long relegated women to the sidelines. From a young age, Sankara observed the stark disparities between the treatment of men and women, an awareness nurtured by the influence of his mother and six sisters. Even as a nine-year-old, he had stepped forth and shielded his mother from his father's hand. In a speech given by Sankara on International Women's Day in 1987, reproduced in full in the book Women's Liberation and the African Freedom Struggle, he said, quote, While society sees the birth of a boy as a gift from God, the birth of a girl is greeted as an act of fate, or at best, a gift that can be used to produce food and perpetuate the human race. The little male will be taught how to want and get, to speak up and be served, to desire and take, to decide things on his own. End quote. Then he compared it to how society raises women. Quote, the future woman, however, is dealt blow after blow by a society that unanimously, as one man, and as one man is the appropriate term, drums into her head norms that lead nowhere. End quote. He continues, quote, From the age of three, she must meet the requirements of her role in life, to serve and be useful, while her brother of four or five or six will play till he drops from exhaustion or boredom, she, with little ceremony, will enter the process of production. She already has a trade, assistant housewife. It is, of course, an unpaid position. For isn't it generally said that a housewife does nothing? Don't we write housewife on the identity cards of women who have no income, meaning they have no job? that they are not working? With the help of tradition and obligatory submissiveness, our sisters grow up more and more dependent, more and more dominated, more and more exploited, and with less and less leisure or free time. End quote. Sankara outlawed female circumcision, polygamy, and forced marriage. He introduced a minimum age for marriage, and decided on new rulings that made it so that divorce proceedings now had to consider a woman's consent. Widows, long marginalized, were granted inheritance rights. And prostitution, he called, quote, nothing but a microcosm of a society where exploitation is a general rule, end quote. He banned that too. Women who had previously sold their bodies were offered places in rehabilitation centers where they received housing and vocational training, which was also offered to the homeless. He also mandated that a minimum of 30% of government positions be held by women, amplifying their voices in decision-making spheres. Furthermore, his government granted pregnant girls and women the right to stay in school. In a symbolic demonstration of the burdens women bear within the home, Sankara orchestrated a protest. In Burkina Faso, the women traditionally went to the markets daily, bought the food and carried it home. But on September 22, 1984, the roles were reversed, and the men were forced into the markets to make them respect the workload and gain first-hand experience of the weight carried by women in their daily lives. It was an act aimed at challenging societal norms and fostering an appreciation for the contribution of women. Beyond social reforms and improving the country's infrastructure, Sankara also launched an ambitious public health program. Over two weeks, two million residents, particularly vulnerable children, were vaccinated against deadly diseases, such as yellow fever, measles, and meningitis. In a groundbreaking move, Sankara's government recognized the looming threat of the HIV epidemic, becoming one of the first in Africa to confront the crisis head-on. Child mortality rates plummeted through the establishment of numerous health centers, leaving an indelible mark on the nation's well-being. Our country produces sufficiently of what we nourish. We can even surpass our production. 
The local cotton industry also developed. The government expected their employees to wear uniforms made from homegrown cotton. And agricultural reforms made food production surge, laying the foundation for a self-sufficient nation. If you allow me to paraphrase, Sankara often said variations of this message. A soldier without political education is but a criminal in power. And in the case of Burkina Faso's military, he put that message into practice. At military bases around the country, he assigned soldiers to cultivate crops, tend livestock, maintain cleanliness in towns and villages, and assist in constructing schools. The significance of this unconventional approach extended beyond the nation's development. According to journalist Ernst Harsh, who has covered Burkina Faso since 1980, Sankara told him that through farming, the soldiers were reminded of how ordinary people worked and toiled. It fostered a sense of camaraderie, bridging the gap between the military and the people, and slowly eroding the notion of privilege. Sankara is often associated with Marxist-Leninist ideologies, but he maintained that Burkina Faso did not align itself exclusively with any foreign doctrine, whether from the right or the left. In his office, books by Karl Marx adorned the shelves, an image of Che Guevara was emblazoned on a cloth, and a bust of Lenin rested on his desk. However, he was also a man of faith, and in an interview with Newsweek, he ardently expressed that his government's sole aim was to ensure the people's access to adequate food, clothing, shelter, health care, and education. People often believe that Sankara outright rejected foreign aid. In truth, Burkina Faso relied on extensive financial support, particularly from France and other nations such as Netherlands, Japan, Cuba, and China. But Sankara's perspective on aid was a departure from conventional notions of charity. He viewed it more as a loan and rejected proposals that might yield short-term benefits but jeopardize the nation's long-term prospects. He tried to forge a future where Burkina Faso could stand independently. This conviction led him to question the influence of institutions like the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, ultimately rejecting their approaches. He viewed it as yielding too much control to these entities would undermine the sovereignty of Burkina Faso's economy and, by extension, its revolutionary path. The wheels of progress were turning relentlessly under Thomas Sankara's leadership. He slashed school fees in half, literacy rates soared, new infrastructure stretched across the land with roads, train tracks, and wells, and he introduced a highly ambitious effort to combat desertification by planting 10 million trees. It was a time of remarkable achievements. But there was a downside. Amid Tumasankara's many victories, critics couldn't help but raise concerns about his methods. They pointed out that his approach veered far away from democracy. For example, no other political parties were allowed, and those the government deemed counter-revolutionary could swiftly be dismissed from their posts. Unions faced opposition as well. In March of 1984, when the country's teachers staged a strike in protest of two colleagues being fired for expressing criticism, the Minister of Education dismissed a thousand more educators. Officially, the government didn't censor the press and maintained that journalists could criticize their policies. However, in practice, dissenting voices remained unheard. The media landscape became dominated by state-owned outlets when in June 1984, Masked individuals attacked and destroyed the printing office of L'Observateur, the nation's only independent newspaper. Sankara often referred to the revolution as a democratic one. Still, it's important to note that his conception of democracy differed from the model the West is accustomed to. 
In countries like the United States, the UK, Germany, France and Sweden, representative democracy prevails, where people voice their opinions by electing representatives from political parties. On the other hand, Sankara had a vision of direct democracy, where residents actively engage in decision-making processes. The establishment of revolutionary courts exemplified this approach. These courts operated outside the regular judicial system, allowing ordinary citizens to witness the trials of corrupt officials and former government members. However, they sometimes devolved into theatrical spectacles marred by personal vendettas. Defendants lacked lawyers and the chance to appeal, leading to concerns about fairness. While some sentences aimed at deterrence and resulted in mild punishments, others delivered harsh prison terms and hefty fines. Sankara's whirlwind of reforms garnered praise from many quarters but also stirred up a formidable opposition. His approach of immediate implementation without trial or transition periods created powerful enemies who resisted the sweeping changes. The bans on polygamy and female circumcision faced resistance from various groups, not just men, who saw them as encroachments on essential customs. The urban middle class was incensed when the government reduced their salaries and eliminated their bonuses to benefit the rural population. Moreover, the traditional practice of granting authority to older male village chiefs clashed with the government's hierarchies. These chiefs, accustomed to wielding power and influence for centuries, were stripped of their ability to extract labor and levy taxes on the populace. Discontent also seeped into the state apparatus when, starting in August 1985, Sankara initiated an annual program that required ministers and government employees to redeploy to rural areas for various projects. Sankara aimed to give them first-hand insights into the challenges faced by the people and to emphasize that government officials were not exempt from the responsibilities of ordinary citizens. Employing his military discipline, he even surprised officials by conducting impromptu inspectations of their workspaces. This method drew disapproval from many. Even minor tardiness by as little as five minutes could result in punishment such as evening or weekend shifts. The order to end an affair with a mistress issued to Captain Gilbert Diandere triggered outrage among Sankara's close military colleagues. Sankara believed infidelity was incompatible with the revolution's ideals, a stance that some of his male allies found too idealistic and resented. By early 1987, Sankara found himself increasingly isolated. While he remained popular among most of the population and drew admiration in certain circles abroad for Burkina Faso's rapid progress, the revolutionary fervor had begun to wane. The atmosphere surrounding Sankara had changed, casting a shadow over his once unified movement. In the international arena, Tuma Sankara's anti-imperialist rhetoric had sent chills down the spines of the United States and France, straining relations between Burkina Faso and its former colonial power. This strain spilled over into conflicts with neighboring Ivory Coast, Mali, and Togo, countries closely aligned with France. Even Libya's Muammar al-Gaddafi, once an ally, had turned his back on Sankara when he refused to allow Libyan-backed rebel troops into the country to prepare a coup in Liberia. Whispers of a looming revolt within Burkina Faso spread like wildfire causing worry among Sankara's closest friends and family. They urged him to strike preemptively, but Sankara chose a different path. He knew that shedding blood would only perpetuate an endless cycle of vendettas. During his speeches in the fall of 1987, Sankara continued his critique of the middle class and political elite, accusing them of exploiting the poor for personal gain. But he also acknowledged that he might have implemented some changes too hastily, suggesting a pause in the revolution to allow society to catch his breath. 
whatever he was hoping to achieve, it was already too late. In the afternoon of October 15, 1987, a vast number of soldiers descended upon the capital, positioning themselves strategically. At the same time, the telecommunications network mysteriously went silent. Those closest to Thomas Ankara had pleaded with him to prioritize his safety, but he believed his work couldn't wait. It is difficult to know how conscious Sankara was of his vulnerable position as he sat there in the meeting room with his cabinet. The details of what unfolded come from Aluna Traore, the only survivor of that ill-fated gathering. He has recounted the same version of events since 1987. The eruption of gunfire outside, resembling, quote, heavy rain suddenly coming down on a tin roof, end quote. Sankara, realizing he was the target, calmly leaving the room with his arms raised above his head, how he barely made it out before being fatally shot, the soldiers storming into the room and executing 12 others in cold blood. Traure was injured in the shooting. His survival was nothing short of a miracle. The attackers had been mobilized by Gilbert D'André, the captain Sankara had reprimanded for his extramarital affairs. Blaise Compaure, Sankara's longtime comrade and close friend, orchestrated the entire takeover. The two had once been so inseparable that people often called them brothers. At one point, Compaure even lived in Sankara's home, prompting Sankara's wife, Mariam, to joke about them being co-wives. But now, Compaure seized control of Burkina Faso. Later that evening, his voice poured out of radios across the country, delivering a speech filled with harsh accusations, painting Sankara as a delusional traitor. The extent of Sankara's anticipation of Compaure's betrayal remains debatable. In historian Brian J. Peterson's book, Thomas Sankara, A Revolutionary in Cold War Africa, published in the spring of 2021, various individuals with intimate knowledge of the events provide insights. Some believe that Sankara had already sensed the inevitability of his demise and did not want to risk dragging Burkina Faso into a potential civil war by attempting to defuse the looming threats. Others argue that Sankara's trusting nature proved to be his downfall. Under cover of night, the lifeless bodies were loaded onto a truck, driven to a burial site in one of Ouagadougou's impoverished neighborhoods, and hastily dumped into freshly dug graves. Sankara was only 37 years old, and the revolution had recently celebrated its fourth anniversary. The news of Sankara's assassination sent shockwaves throughout the nation. While Burkina Faso had grown accustomed to coups, this was the first time a president had been assassinated. Compaure vehemently denied any involvement, concocting a narrative in which his troops had discovered a plot orchestrated by Sankara. According to Compaure, the soldiers attempted to apprehend Sankara, but he allegedly responded with gunfire, forcing them to shoot him in self-defense. All but Compaure's staunchest allies rejected his version of events immediately. The question of France's involvement in Sankara's assassination has ignited passionate debates among historians, political commentators, and ordinary people in Burkina Faso and beyond. Some view it as a meticulously planned French operation. In contrast, others see it as the culmination of an internal power struggle. Brian J. Peterson offers a nuanced perspective, suggesting that while France may not have directly participated militarily, it played a role in creating the conditions for the coup. This included exerting financial pressure, smearing Sankara in the media, and fostering dissent within Sankara's party. 
Numerous efforts have been made to pressure France into releasing classified documents that could shed light on its potential responsibility. So far, without success. During his life, and even more after his murder, Sankara transcended his role as a national figure and became a global symbol of Pan-Africanism, self-sufficiency, anti-imperialism, and anti-corruption. However, within Burkina Faso, he faced vilification. Compaure attempted to portray himself as the true revolutionary who had genuinely cared about the people. On the international stage, however, Compaure sought to present himself as a pragmatic and level-headed leader, distancing himself from Sankara's radical ideas. He eagerly embraced collaborations with Western powers and swiftly signed agreements with institutions like the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. As a result, major Western countries welcomed him as a refreshing and cooperative presence. But back in Burkina Faso, Compaure dismantled the revolution's achievements. The new regime, lacking popular support, relied on the upper middle class, traditional village chiefs, and members of the pre-revolutionary political elite, groups that had historically held power in the country and with whom Sankara had alienated himself. Corruption, once again, infiltrated everyday life. Blaise Compaure held the reins of power in Burkina Faso for 27 years, until 2014, when his attempts to change the constitution and extend his term ignited intense protests. All throughout the morning, we were in the streets uh, very early this morning when protests started around uh, 6, 6.30 a.m. So clashes with the police started then. Protesters were throwing stones. Police, uh, militaries, gendarmerie were uh, throwing uh, tear gas. And uh, then uh, the, the protesters forced their way towards parliament to burn the building down. So now all around me, there's just black smoke everywhere in the city and, and there are still uh, protesters that talk about marching to Kosiam, Kosiam being the presidential palace, to oust the president. The youth especially say that they have no prospects and it's, it's really about uh, um, the, the youth and the people asking for economic prospects, for, for, uh, uh, for jobs, uh, for basic infrastructure in their country. Uh, the, most of the protesters that I met this morning say that they've had enough, uh, that 27 years is already too long, that they haven't seen the, the, their country being, being developed and that none of the promises were kept. During these demonstrations, activists fervently chanted Sankara's name. His face adorned posters and t-shirts, and protesters quoted his words in speeches. Eventually, Compaure fled the country, seeking refuge in Ivory Coast. In 2015, a new presidential election took place, resulting in the victory of former Prime Minister Caboria. Sankara's widow, family and supporters had long fought to bring the guilty to justice. With the departure of Compaure, the opportunity finally arrived. In 2015, Sankara's body was exhumed, and an autopsy revealed that he had suffered more than 12 gunshot wounds. Then, in April 2021, a military court in Burkina Faso finally brought charges against Blaise Compaure and 13 others, accusing them of complicity in the murder. The long-awaited trial commenced in October, albeit without Compaure, who defiantly boycotted the proceedings, asserting his immunity as a former head of state. Having acquired Ivorian citizenship during his time in exile, his release now hinged on the permission of the Ivorian government. But then the unexpected occurred, rattling the nation once more. It's Sunday, January 23rd, 2022. Mobile networks abruptly go silent and gunfire reverberates from various military barracks nationwide. Then flames engulf the headquarters of the ruling party. As evening descends, shots ring out near the presidential palace. The next day, soldiers take over the state radio and television station. Hours later, they broadcast a speech to the nation. 
Communiqué numéro 1. Peuple du Burkina Faso. Concitoyens, concitoyennes. In the broadcast, 14 soldiers emerge, clad in desert camouflage. Some sport red and blue berets, while others don helmets and face masks. Automatic weapons rest in the hands of several. They identify themselves as the Patriotic Movement for Safeguard and Restoration declaring that they have ousted the president due to his failure to stop the deteriorating security situation. Since 2015, jihadist groups in northern Burkina Faso have unleashed deadly attacks, resulting in more than 2,000 deaths and displacing nearly 2 million people. Similar groups have emerged in Mali, Chad and across the Sahel region, taking advantage of the influx of weapons following Gaddafi's fall in Libya in 2011. During their speech, the soldiers announced the dissolution of parliament and the government. They closed the borders and enforced new curfews. A week later, the soldiers reintroduced the constitution and appointed Lieutenant-Colonel Paul-Henri Sandao-Gudamiba as the new president. In March, the junta declared its intention to hold elections after a three-year transitional period. The trial against Compaure pressed forward amidst the precarious state of affairs in the country. The verdict was delivered on April 3, 2022, a life sentence for Compaure and two cronies. Eight of the remaining 11 defendants received prison terms ranging from 3 to 20 years, while the remaining three were acquitted. Curiously, despite the gravity of his sentence, the new president permitted Compaure to return to Burkina Faso for a conference attended by several former leaders of the country. Lawyers representing the Sankara family called for his arrest, but their pleas were brushed aside. There are different perceptions of what reconciliation means. That's true everywhere, including Burkina Faso. Some champion turning the page, granting amnesty to all involved. Others insist that true reconciliation necessitates apologies and consequences before progress can be made. Compaure at least offered an apology. In a letter read aloud by a spokesperson, he wrote, quote, I ask the Burkinabe people for forgiveness for all the acts I may have committed during my tenure, and especially the family of my brother and friend Tumasankara. I take responsibility for and regret from the bottom of my heart all the suffering and tragedies experienced by all victims during my term as leader of the country, and ask their families to grant me their forgiveness. End quote. The response to his apology was a mixed bag. Some factions deemed it insufficient, contending that justice remained elusive as long as he walked free. However, this time, the battle against the jihadists took center stage, overshadowing other concerns. Compaure's freedom was seemingly secured, as the conference was meant to symbolize national unity in the face of rebel insurgency. As I record this episode, there isn't any conclusion in sight. In September 2022, another coup took place in Burkina Faso, which brought a relatively unknown leader to power. Since then, he, Ibrahim Traoré, have caused quite a stir. I will cover some of it in next week's Minnesota. For now, we can only watch and wait to see if the soldiers will honor their promise to relinquish power after a transitional period or if they will succumb to the familiar temptations of military juntas throughout history, clinging to authority and suppressing democratic aspirations. Is there such a thing as a good-hearted dictator? It's a thought-provoking question. Some would say that Tumasankara is an example of one, or that he's as close as you're going to get Others would say that his uncompromising nature showed signs of an authoritarian side which had already begun to, and in time would continue to, lead to an abuse of power. Lord Acton, 
an English historian, is known for a letter he sent to a bishop in 1887. In the letter he wrote, quote, Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. End quote. I will let you listeners make up your own mind about Sankara and what would have happened had he not been assassinated. However, one thing seems evident to me. During a time, the 1980s, where many other African leaders seemed to engage in a competition of who could be most corrupt, selfishly enriching themselves at the expense of their nations, Sankara offered an alternative path. Instead of succumbing to the temptation of personal gain, he instilled the national pride, self-confidence, and the hope for self-sufficiency. Thank you for listening to the first episode of Black History Unveiled with me, Amat Levine. If you've listened this far and liked what you've heard, I want to share something with you. This is a podcast where I research, write the scripts, record, edit, and produce by myself. It's pretty much a full-time job. So I would be very grateful if you would consider becoming a Patreon subscriber for as little as a dollar a month. As a subscriber, you can get pictures and maps that make the episodes easier to visualize, get episodes completely free of advertising, and get extra bonus episodes. All info can be found at patreon.com slash blackhistoryunveiled. If you don't want to become a subscriber, another way to help me is to share the podcast on social media, recommend it to someone, or give it a rating or a review on the podcast app you're using. That's it. I'll see you guys next week. Peace. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.